you want to take stressful situations and harness them into that motivating type of stress. And you want to work to make sure it doesn't move to distress where it's upsetting and it's demotivating and can cause depression and all sorts of things. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Uncoupling the Podcast, where we talk about breakups, but more importantly, how to empower yourself when you move on. I am your host, Holland Roden, and this week, I am very excited to introduce, I feel like this needs a drum roll, <laughs> an expert. <laughs> uh, so Dr. Earnshaw, thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Earnshaw is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a clinical fellow at the American Association of I feel like I have to read this so I don't screw this up. Uh, she's a clinical fellow at the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy. She is the head of relationship health at ours, as well as the founder of A Better Life Therapy. And she wrote a book called I Want This to Work. And can I also let people know that you're working on another one as well? Yeah, sure. It's going to be called Till Stress Do Us Part. Oh, that's a great title. Thank you. <laughs> Elizabeth, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. I guess I want to focus on, there's so many things I want to ask you. So let's just divide and conquer. Um, stress to us part. How did you come upon wanting to focus on stress and writing this book? Yeah. So I've been a couples therapist for quite a while now. And when I was first married um, and I had my first child, we started having a lot of problems um, and we were fighting all of the time. And I was thinking to myself, what the hell is wrong with me? I'm a couples therapist. I know how to communicate and I'm not doing it. And I'm, I'm not acting like myself and he's not acting like himself. What's going on? And it kind of sent me down this path towards understanding that a lot of what we teach in couples therapy only works if people feel like they're in a safe body. And if they are under distress, either in their relationship or like life around them is stressful, then it is really hard to use the tools that I I give my clients, right? It's hard to say, hey, you're really stressed right now, but could you just kind of listen to what your partner has to say, even though they're saying a lot of upsetting things? It's just not easy for us to do. So I started doing a lot of research on why is that, what goes on with people when they're stressed. And when we are stressed, there's two parts, right? There is the stressor. So for me and my husband, that was having a new baby. Our whole life had changed. Um, For other people, it might be a job loss. It might be that sex isn't going as well as it used to. Um, So there's the stressor. And then there's stress, which is the response that your body gives to the stressor. And stress is a physiological response. When we're stressed, the very first things we lose are our relational skills. Mm -hmm. So our brains start to shut off different areas that aren't going to be effective in survival. Our blood starts pumping all sorts of hormones that make us go into fight or flight, which is why when people are stressed out, they argue more, they say things they don't mean or they shut down. Um, And so somebody could tell you right now in this argument, you should stop talking. You're not saying anything helpful, but their body is actually leading the way in those moments. And so what I started to do with couples is I started to help them learn to identify how they could tell that their body is having those physical responses so that they could soothe 
those first and then have conversations. That's so interesting because it's almost, I, I equate it to uh, the shoe cobbler has dirty shoes, so to speak. Um, yes. And it, it always fascinates me because I've been in therapy. Oh gosh. I mean, on and off my whole life coming from divorced parents. Um, so I'm a huge advocate for therapy. Uh, it's just as important as physical health. I think we're turning that corner as a nation in America, at least in 2023. But the West Coast is definitely one of the uh, igniters of yes. therapy <laughs> is just as important as going to a physical doctor. Yes. And so how did you know you felt so strongly of when you start, you, you know, you had your first baby and you knew, OK, is this the first time I don't practice what I preach? This came so easily to me. And that was the first time you felt this divergence from your personal and professional life that yeah. that's you knew was that the, so that was the first time that's ever happened. And that's why you knew, OK, that's a strong enough of a signal to me that I want to learn more about this. And it made you want to write oh, a book. For sure. I mean, the there was like a night where it happened where I was just so enraged with my husband. I like threw a laundry basket across the room and I whispered under my breath that I hope he dies in his sleep. Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I was not myself. Yeah. And I started as I was working with couples and I've at this point in my life worked with hundreds and hundreds of couples. Mm -hmm. They are their very worst selves when they're stressed. But what happens is that people will tell them, well, this is how you should be behaving. And so they'll go to a couples therapist or if they're if they're getting a divorce or they're uncoupling, mm -hmm. they'll go to a mediator and and people will tell them you shouldn't do that. Like if you're upset, you should just express yourself this way. And it it's too hard to do it if your body isn't allowing you to do it. To be relational, we need to be able to have things like curiosity, um, humor, affection. We have to do those types of things, even if you're uncoupling. Um, but if you are in a distressed state, you actually cannot access those qualities. Mm. You'll notice if you're upset about something, at home or at work or wherever, and somebody makes a joke, you say, that's not funny, <laughs> right? Or um, don't hold my hand, don't touch me. Or I don't want to talk about that. Why'd you ask that question? We become very, very insular and we become very self-protective and we can't let anything else in. But you can't have productive conversations if you're not able to let in humor or curiosity or affection. or And that's not to say you have to say like, oh, yes, you can touch me if I don't want you to touch me. But there is a way to still let in affection while having boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I noticed as I was working with couples, and of course, as I was going through this myself, that it always helped much more to say, let's just stop the conversation. And we've got to figure out how to get all these stress hormones out of your bloodstream you need to pause. It takes at least 20 minutes hmm. for that dump from the bloodstream. 20 minutes for your body to physiologically move into a different space in order to have an answer that would sound like you on a normal day. It, yes, at least 20 minutes away from the stressor. So if you go to like your bedroom and you keep texting the person that you're frustrated with, it's going to take another 20 minutes. <laughs> so you continue to add the time. So it takes at least 20 minutes for some people, it might be a little more, um, for those stress hormones to be dumped out of the bloodstream and for you to return to baseline. And so mm -hmm. 
learning to take a break and soothe makes it much more likely that you're going to have effective conversations about whatever the topic is afterwards. I think it makes it so accessible that you share, I had said all these mean things underneath my breath because that's not (laughs) something you would normally say in your personality. And I just wonder how many couples, um, myself included, um, I'm, I'm, I say I don't get mad, I get sad. <laughs> I'm that person. Um, but there's a lot of people that get mad. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me of how many couples, in your opinion, um, potentially didn't have to uncouple um, because, but they did, because they always were reacting in that stressor, fight or flight, physiological, you know, siren state and that they they never were able to return back to baseline and be themselves with each other and love each other through a difficult conversation. And so it just got to the breaking point because of that. How many, in your experience, is that something you see a lot? I see it a lot. And I often see the couple after they've been doing that for a long period of time. So when I see them at the beginning, it's really not that big of a deal because it's a huge aha moment when people are like, oh, my partner isn't talking to me right now because they are emotionally shut down and they just can't get the words out of their brain. I can give them space, right? Or my partner is being really snappy right now because they're overwhelmed. I can give them space. Once they know that and once they know how to soothe themselves, it makes a huge difference. The problem is, is I often meet with people when they've been doing that for five years, 10 years, Mm -hmm. 20 years sometimes, And when couples are in that for a long time, something happens called the distance and isolation cascade, which means that if you think of a waterfall or something, you cascade further and further apart from each other every single time you become each other's threat response. So, which makes sense physiologically, right? It's like, you make me feel threatened. I go into fight or flight. I do my thing, whether it's I shut down and I cry and I can't talk to you or I stomp off or I freeze and I cross my arms. I do my thing. But then I've left this interaction also internally remembering you as someone who puts me into that state. And so that's who I see you as. And I see you through this negative lens of somebody who just makes me feel bad in my body. And because of that, I'm going to distance myself from you. And that might be through blaming you more often. It's safer. I can stay really far apart from you because I tell you that you suck. Um, Or it might be from just not giving you the time of day. I stay at work later. Mm. I don't listen to you. I'm on my phone all the time. Um, And and the longer it goes on, the more and more and more distance there is. And then it it becomes really challenging to navigate that. When you... I think it's, it's like plaque building up in your relationship between each other and, oh, and you ultimately develop different personalities as a result, or you add a, have like a, an a, attachment to your personality with your partner that we wouldn't traditionally like a tumor almost that wouldn't traditionally be there. Um, that then that you live more in that tumor than you do in like your true selves. Um, yes. yeah. And then that tumor becomes the reality. It becomes cancer. Yep. Right. Yep. Right. That's really exactly. interesting. I mean, when you say cascade, distance and cascade effect, right? Distance, uh, yes, distance and isolation cascade. So you become more distanced and more isolated from each other. And, and you it cascades faster and faster as it goes on. Uh-huh. Like a waterfall. Distance yes. and isolation cascade. Do you feel like the shutting down person versus, uh, 
yeah, the shutting down person that might stay at work longer, the, the isolation, mm-hmm. um, it's isolation, isolation and distance versus the person that stomps their feet and says things they regret. I mean, what would you say personality wise that you find, um, and maybe this can help, uh, help somebody listening with themselves as well, uh, yeah. to, to diffuse is there one personality type you find worse, more sort of damaging. And then second, how can they help prepare themselves, especially if they're going through a breakup and they find themselves as one of these types of people? That's a good question. So we actually might behave differently in every relationship. So mm-hmm. with my husband, maybe I'm a fighter and with another person, I might get shut down and it just, it's however your kind of physiology and personality play off of each other. But the part of what you asked, which I think is really, really important, is which is worse or is one worse? And you pointed out beautifully that there is usually in a relationship a distancer and a pursuer. And the distancer is someone who's like, I'm not, I don't want to talk about it. Oh, sorry, I can't get to that tonight because I'm stuck at the office. Or do we have, oh, I just wanted to watch TV tonight. Why do we have to bring up stuff all the time? Why do you always have to complain? And the pursuer, is someone who, when they're angry, they're like louder, like, no, you have to talk to me now. I can't believe that you don't want to keep having this conversation. No, do not go to sleep. Oh, that's Let's so talk. interesting. That's not, so it doesn't even have to be a rageful thing. It can be a pleading thing that's the pursuer. It could be, an, it's a, they're viewing it as a kind thing, but really it's coming off as nagging or not the appropriate time in yeah, the pursuer. So it doesn't have to be rage necessarily. It can be, why do, why can't we have this conversation now? Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Okay. Rage too, right? And both of them can be rage. Some people, when they're enraged, they're like, well, F you, I'm closing my door and I'm not talking to you. Some people, when they're enraged, they're like, you will talk to me, you jerk, you know, you're, I should have known because I know what your dad is like and I should have known how you would be. And, or mm. it might be more of like, I don't want to have this conversation. And the other person being like, no, we have to talk about this. Which um, still can so- still be toxic. Like I've been that person thinking it was helpful but without curse words, without, you know, sort of uh, things thrown in their face. But that can still be toxic if you are trying to fix a situation when the other person's having a physiological breakdown. That exactly. they can't they can't function in that moment. Interesting. So it's not exactly. helpful to be like, let's calm down. Let's talk about it right now. Because right yeah. they like cannot take that feedback from you. The interesting thing is that whether you're the pursuer or the distancer, you're both trying to protect from the bad outcomes of that stress response. So the mm-hmm. person who's the pursuer is like, talk to me because I want to be soothed. I need your reassurance. I need to know everything's okay. I want to know we're still a team. Let's just deal with this. So Mm -hmm. they're trying to do all of this to prevent them from becoming escalated. Now, the other person has the exact same goal. They're like, if we keep talking, I'm going to blow my top and I want you to stop. I need to be in another room. This is going to get worse. There's nothing that we are going to say that's going to make this better. Mm -hmm. So in a very weird way, they're both trying to do the same thing. Trying to solve the problem, right? They're trying to solve the immediate problem and reduce the escalation. Unfortunately, when they're together, they escalate each other because it's like, you're withdrawing from me and I need you. And the other person's like, stop, this is too much. Um, And so what happens though, is that they will get into this dynamic over and over and over again. And 
then the stress response becomes chronic. And one of the questions you asked is one worse than the other. Mm-hmm. Research has shown that the distancing is worse. Wow. And the reason for that is because, and neither of them are good. So right. I don't want anybody listening to be like, oh, yes, I knew that I should keep pursuing. He just my screams partner, at me all the time. It's fine. <laughs> yes. It's fine. It's fine if my partner like walks around the house and corners me to talk to them. No, like it, it's still not OK. It could obviously be abusive. Most of the time it's not abusive. It's just annoying when the other person is doing that. Um, but the reason that the distancing is the biggest problem is it it shows the other person, whether this is true or not, a disinterest. Mm. And when you have a disinterest, what it feels like is I should stop trying. And so the interesting thing we know about relationships that end is that it's actually usually that pursuer that ends up ending the relationship. Really? Yes. Because eventually they're like, I... I've tried everything. Like, I can't do this anymore. I'm not going to keep throwing a ball to somebody who doesn't catch it. Right. And that's when they come to my therapy office and the the distancer is like, I said no to therapy for years, but now I really want to try. I can't believe they want to leave. And I'm like, well, yeah, they tried for like seven years and, you know, you weren't right. doing anything. Um, so in a relationship, there's when people are trying to connect and that's what pursuing is, there's three ways we can respond. One is that we turn towards the need for connection and we respond to that need. One is we turn against. So that would be saying- like Yeah. Well, t- and turning against usually has more energy. It's usually not- uh, okay. Okay. It's usually like, you know, I'm going to get right back in your face and say stuff to you. A different type of pursuer. A different type. And then the last is turning away. And that's the distancer is turning away. It's like you tried to hand me a ball and I'm just going to drop it on the ground. Um, And so when somebody's trying to connect with you, and I talk about this with the stress stuff, it is completely fair to need space. Mm -hmm. That is healthy. And if you're the pursuer, something new to think about is my partner is not going to be able to talk to me if they need space. They physically cannot. But the way you can take space is to first respond to that need for connection, which doesn't mean staying up and talking all night. It doesn't mean solving the problem. It might mean saying something like, I love you very much. We will solve this. I'm super overwhelmed. I'm not going to talk right now. And is that going to immediately work? No, but it helps your partner to feel safe within their body and to get that need met. And I think those first two sentences you say are so crucial. Like, I love you very much. We are going to solve this. Is just that copacetic that the that the pursuer, especially the pursuer looking for a solution, not the pursuer who throws things in your face, needs to just, ju- they just need that little veil of a blanket in order for them to go think about what they need to think about and, and, to, and have for the distancer to take their time. I yes. think those two sentences are such a game changer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just letting the other person know I care about you and I'm here. So our connection is still alive and I'm committed to this issue. I'm just not committed to the issue right now because I need a break. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. I think also for our listeners is just this is the first time I have been in therapy a long time and with good, with excellent therapists. Um, Mm -hmm. But that 
the pursuer usually and people in breakup say, I did everything. I was there. I was a bleeding heart. I wanted to solve everything. They walked away from me or they had all this rage back towards me is that the pursuer can also be at fault with the lack of a better term. Um, yeah. And yeah. you know, one thing I help people with is I actually put, um, heart rate monitors on people in the office That's, during their sessions. Yeah. Because it helps to depersonalize it. Um, and so the pursuer, all of a sudden, it'll, it beeps when it gets over um, 90 beats per minute or more wow. is when you know you're escalated. Um, and so it'll beep. And so they'll be sitting on the couch and then they can kind of laugh at themselves, right? Like they're like, okay, yeah, this isn't me. <laughs> I need to stop. But the same can happen for the distancer where they're shut down and their partner like, why aren't you talking to me? You don't take this seriously. And all of a sudden it's like, boop, 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 boop. And they're able to, to step back and say, oh my gosh, I'm, I can see that you're upset. I can see mm. you're overwhelmed. You can't use the words the way I can use the words, but I can see that you're overwhelmed. Um, and so yes, each person has a role to play. And the role is how do I soothe myself so that I can stay engaged in respectful conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and so that my anxiety and my stress isn't running the show. And I'm running the show in this conversation, um, which is, it's hard to do. That's so interesting. That you, and especially the heart monitor aspect I've also never heard of before. And it's like you said, it depersonalizes it. It lets us know that our bodies are not always our minds. And you can love somebody in your mind and, and have the, you know, you know, you love that person, but your body has a different physiological response just in that moment, which doesn't mean that's what they think for the long term. Um, yes. when, it, when it comes to breakups and stress, do you find that people just have different love languages and they either can't take that pursuer out of their personality or they can't, as distancers say, they don't have, they can't calm their anxiety enough enough down to say, I love you so much, but now I'm, I have to just take some time. We will solve this, but please give me time versus I just need time is such a different energy response to a pursuer. Um, do you find that people break up because the two can't meet? Or like you said, there's been a cascade effect for a long enough time. Um, what percentage can solve that to prevent an uncoupling? Um, and when do you find as a therapist in your experience of it's best to uncouple when the stress yeah. response is too great? Yeah. So, you know, I think that it has a huge, a huge role to play. I think a lot of people who separate after many years who were trying, a lot of it was we could never communicate because anxiety and stress was the driver. And so we would, we would, disregard the other person or we would disregard ourselves, you know, because sometimes the pursuer often disregards themselves mm. when, when they're in this situation. Um, and, and so I think that that is often the reason that people end that type of relationship. I also think that there are other reasons, like sometimes people find that they just aren't compatible. So there's a lot of people that uncouple from that place. There's not a lot of anger about it. It's just like, we were in a great place at one point and we're right. not anymore. Like I want kids and you don't, or I want to travel the world and you're kind of cozy and comfy staying in this house. And 
you know, that's okay. Or you have too many work hours and I'm not mad at you for it, but I want somebody who's home more often. And so sometimes the uncoupling comes from that more conscious space. Logistical. Yeah. I see what's going on. I, I kind of see how this is impacting us and I'm making a decision. When the breakups aren't coming from that space, there is often this like underlying kind of fight or flight that is playing into it. Mm. Um, And it is so split around like who is going to come into the office and be able to repair that and who isn't. The number one thing I see, though, that helps people to make it, even if they end up getting um, divorced or separated, making it to me is having a respectful relationship. That's why we're starting this podcast of uncoupling. (laughs) There is a beginning, middle, and after. Yeah, Yeah, it's okay to end a relationship, right? But you want to be able to to make it. You want to be able to do it in a way where you're not causing each other. You you can't take away all the pain, but like Mm -hmm. unnecessary pain and unnecessary harm and drama. Like as a couples therapist, you see it and it's not worth the drama. It's not worth it at all. Um, But the couples who come in who have a willingness to see themselves and to recognize their role and are willing to do that, even if the other person isn't, those people have the best chance at moving forward in a way that's going to be healthy and respectful. Even just one person being willing. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. the relationship might still end, you know, but the willingness of the one person to say, I'm going to take responsibility for my own responses here. I'm going to show up with the integrity that I want to have in this dynamic. That helps to reduce co-escalatory responses. So human beings escalate or de-escalate with each other. Mm -hmm. We feel each other's vibes, right? It's just true. So if you're feeling calmer and more grounded, the likelihood the other person is feeling that way is going to increase as well. Mm-hmm. Even if they don't, because you're calm and grounded, you're going to make great decisions that mean that you choose for yourself not to engage in something that is outside of who you are and what you value. The sounding board is a lot more plush for that other person to yeah. bounce their bad habits against. Yeah. Yeah. And you are not going to be like moved by that, right? You're going to be right. like, I'm still me. I am going to stay me. I'm not going to become a different version of myself because of all of this stuff. And because Mm -hmm. I stay me, then we don't reverberate all this chaos. It's just, Mm. it's just, I'm here being myself and you cannot prevent somebody else from being chaotic and doing all of those things. The, I mean, the ideal is that both people are willing to look at themselves and to say, oh yeah, I do shut down and I need to learn how to breathe and Mm. I need to how to stay in the conversation even when it's hard or yes, I do get activated and I need to learn how to back off and I need to learn how to think through what I'm going to say before I say it. Um, But the, the couples that struggle the most are when they're what I call willful. And so there's this sense where it's like, Oh, I'm, I don't have to change that. Mm. Um, You know, and and both parties are like that. They're just like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a party one. We want both to be willing, but the willfulness of I'm only going to do that once 
they do it. And you see this, it escalates so much with divorces. I work a lot with people who are going through a divorce, particularly if there's like kids involved and there's so much willfulness. Like, well, I'm not going to talk nice to them until they talk nice to me. And it just escalates everything. Um, and where so, does that come from? It's like big kid syndrome where all of a sudden these people pay taxes and have successful careers and birth children and raise children. And then it becomes this like staunch five-year-old of I'm not doing this till they do it. Where does stress play, play a role in that? Because it just shocks me that I understand we're big kids from a sense of youthfulness and wanting to have fun and um, adrenaline. You know, we can be immature big kids. But when it comes to responsibility and emotional intelligence, that's the difference, I believe, between adults and children, or it should be the difference, is that sometimes kids can't developmentally process that at five and six and seven and eight years old. Um, What do you say? How do you think stress plays or does it play a factor? Is that just at that point their personality type? It plays a huge role. I mean, okay, so if we're moving from the relationship being a committed relationship to now we're breaking up Mm -hmm. and it's hard. Think about all of the distress in someone's body around that if it's not a conscious, safe breakup. That is one of the biggest threats, right? Losing a relationship is a huge threat for human beings. That's my village. That's my person. Even though I've decided I hate them and we're getting a divorce, this is still threatening to me. It's their Um, shelter oftentimes. Their shelter. Add in money. Oh my gosh, they're going to take my money or I'm going to have to pay child support or we're going to have to split this or everything you've built in your life all of a sudden just gets halved, but then you're just getting older. Yeah. Or I can't afford the leader or I'm going to lose all my friends. So all of these scary things are coming into play. Mm. Um, And I mean, if you're thinking about it in the public eye too, like celebrities having to go through that, it's like, and everybody's going to see it. And I'm going to have to figure out what I say about this. And so there's all of this stress that's moving through your body. And as I said before, when that's happening, there's a lot going on Mm -hmm. that is priming you for fight or flight. Your muscles actually start to get hormones sent to them. So they get tenser. You start to breathe differently so that you can fight. Your brain starts to operate in a really myopic, hyper-focused way. Myopic meaning you can only keep your eye on the one thing, which is why- Almost like a child. Like a child. If you look at annoying divorces, you're like, why are they blowing their life up because they want their grandmother's lamp? Like, let the flipping lamp go, right? (laughs) Right? Yeah. On the one thing. And it's not a judgment on that person. They're so distressed hmm. that they're in fight, flight, and sometimes freeze. And the way that might show up in a divorce is fight shows up with all the nastiness, right? I'm getting my lawyer and you're going to regret the day that you did this to me and I'm going to drag yeah. this out and all of that. Flight might look like um, do whatever you want. I don't care. Like have the house, have the da 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 And freeze might look like someone who's like, oh, I haven't signed the papers yet, but I'll look at it next week. Um, no, I still haven't opened my my email. I haven't signed. No, I haven't sent the check. So we have all these stress responses and both people are feeling this way. And so it's no surprise that divorce courts look absolutely insane. And, the, and that they're just left at the most vulnerable, bleeding state of 
infancy, infancy. Yes. And it, it doesn't right. help. And I, my father's a lawyer, bless lawyers, but it doesn't help that the way that we've set up divorces is by utilizing people who are trained to be um, in conflict um, mm -hmm. because then they're amping up the stress. They're not trained to say to their client, I think you're saying these things because you're really stressed. Like, why don't we just take a breath? They're there to exacerbate, exacerbate it. Yeah. 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 20 minutes before sending that email off. And I'll talk about, they are likely to play into it. You're right. That jerk shouldn't have mm -hmm. the lake house. You're right. How dare she ask for every holiday? You know, that's ridiculous. Instead of, I bet you're angry about that because it feels threatening. How could we get to an actual resolution here? Um, so the entire process of it is just kind of built in a way that exacerbates everything. So, it's so it, a lot of this is new information to me of, of why do people become so infantile? And that's a great way of structuring it is that it really comes from this, you know, stress on a steroidal level. Yes. Um, yeah, that's so yeah. interesting. And, and our system is built, like you said, to fight, flight, and also freeze. And yeah. that um, exacerbates the stigma against breakups um, with all of that obviously changing. And then when it, all of it changes, it ends with this big battle on this, you know, metaphorical battleground. Um, Absolutely. So we're, so we're set up to fail in a lot of ways emotionally around divorces. Yeah. Set up to fail. It's already a scary situation. And then there's nobody there helping to regulate people. And instead, it's like this very punishing experience of not only am I not going to help you get regulated, I'm, I'm, I'm going to only walk you through a process in which you're just going to lose things and feel threatened. And we're going to win some things, lose some things, but like you're going to lose in some capacity. That's scary. And, you know, often people will ask themselves, how did, like you said, how did this normally functioning person, they have a job, they have kids. I actually really <laughs> like them usually. Yeah. They have friends. All of a sudden, they're not even thinking about their kids anymore. It, it's all because they've become completely threat response, myopic. And it's all about how do I keep myself safe? Um, even if the way they're keeping themselves safe looks really bad um, in terms of how it plays out. Mm. I think it's even apply to a bigger conversation, especially things that go on in the media and people that disagree over big world events that you say we can disagree respectfully versus disagreeing disrespectfully. And it comes yes. down to, like you said, more everyday micro conversations or ways of solving problems on an everyday basis versus letting something build up and the distance and isolate isolation cascade. Absolutely. And like you, you just pointed out, if you look at the way the world is right now, one of the things I write about in the book is we are all so polarized now. When you actually talk to people, you're not as polarized as the world makes it seem, right? But if it's mm -hmm. out in the media, on social media, it's like, oh my God, none of us get along. <laughs> but if you go to a coffee shop, everybody's getting along just exactly. fine. Exactly. So. It's such a strange way that we communicate as humans. One of you are the ones that were just online yelling at someone because you seem totally normal right now, but you know that's coming out. But think about why that is. We have lived through a very stressful 
three, almost four years now Mm. where there's threat at every angle. It's like, oh my gosh, there's a virus that could take me out. Now my business might go out of business because we had to shut everything down. And now you're telling me interest rates are rising. So I can't even buy a house and there's war and there's, there's shootings and there's all of this stuff that we're constantly exposed to. And then we're shocked that people are living in their fight or flight brain and that they're yelling at people and all, and it doesn't make it right. Um, but that's where it's coming from. We need more therapists on MSNBC. <laughs> that's my two cents on the matter. <laughs> we have these political or geopolitical analysts and um, we have lawyers, obviously, and occasionally a mediator. But where is the licensed therapist during a divorce? We need there to be like, okay, let's drop the judgments. These people are all very stressed out. <laughs> You guys need like a Skillshare for breakups, like the therapist episode of the like click of these are the things I need to be going through through a breakup. Yeah. But how do you walk away from a logistical uh, problem to uncouple in that circumstance? And my overall question um, is the top three things to make stress work for you during a breakup or after a breakup Mm -hmm. when we're recovering. So I'll talk about the logistical one first. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that's why people stay in relationships too long because logistically uh, it's hard, right? We, I, I talk to couples all the time who emotionally are kind of cool with it. Like they're like, yeah, I don't know. We could break up. We could stay together. But then there's all these logistics. Like where are we? That seems expensive or it seems like it's going to be exhausting or how do you even do it? Or what are our kids going to think? Or where will we live? So there's all of that stuff. And people get really caught on that and then they don't move forward. Mm -hmm. A question that I always pose to people, like I can't make that choice for them. I can't tell them how to make things logistically easier because we're all so different, right? I'm the type of person that logistics aren't hard for me. Like I could be like, okay, fine. I have nowhere to live. I'll figure it out tomorrow. No big deal. Emotions are harder for me. Um, Mm. but with the people, when they get stuck in the logistical stuff, I say to them, that's okay. So one thing that's really important is not making people feel caged in. As soon as someone feels caged in, they're not going to make a decision, right? Mm. So if I, as a therapist say, you've got to break up, you have to do this tomorrow. There's no other way. You're going to figure it out. They're going to say, no, 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 we can't do that. We're going to go find another therapist. So you tell people you have lots of options. One option is you actually don't have to break up. Mm. You can stay this way as long as you want. And you can behave the exact same way with each other and cope with it. You've survived this long. Mm-hmm. Miserable, but that's okay. And I won't judge you. The second option is that you can keep working on this. You can say, we're going to continue to make a commitment to improve how we communicate and try to improve connection and blah, blah, blah. The third option you have is that you do end it. And with that, you have to work on grieving what's going to change. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to say to yourself out loud, I am going to experience loss. There is nothing I can do here that is going to make this super easy. I could make it easier with my behavior and all of that, but I'm going to experience loss and I'm going to accept that. Um, And just making that decision. And when you do those three choices, sometimes that makes the logistical stuff seem a little easier to people because suddenly they're like, yeah, we can't stay this way. We've, 
we've done couples therapy, we've tried, we're miserable. We do have to make a decision. And we do recognize that within that, it's going to be really hard, but that life does move forward and we're going to get through it. And other people have gotten through it, but we do have to make a decision. Um, And so is there any magic pill to make it all simple? No, but the hardest part is usually committing to making the decision in the first place. Committing to make the decision, definitely. I always feel like when some when you find great love in your life, I think a lot of people are able to connect to this. The logistics feel so minute of yeah. oh, that's easy to work out. Yeah, but sometimes it's not easy to work out. And at what point do you value your own happiness and fulfillment in your own life? over that love, over the emotional aspect. And you keep saying, oh, well, love should win always. I'll figure something else out logistically, but that's not always the answer. And I think that's definitely a big girl or a big boy lesson that I've had to learn and have had a really hard time with coping. So I think we always think, oh, once the love stops, then you break up, but it's not always the case. No. And um, I would say that it's really, really challenging when that's the case because there's also shame. Because, I didn't try hard enough. Yeah, because of the one thing you just said, which is society says, like, love conquers all. Mm. So why can't we figure out how to make it work even though we have to live long distance? Or why can't we figure out how to make it work even though, you know, I want a big family and you don't want any kids at all? Like, I love you so much. I should be able to figure that out. And we feel a lot of shame if we say, I love you and I can't figure that out. It's just We're not magicians. It's not easier said than done. Yeah. Yeah. And you can, you know, it's interesting because it's kind of the only relationship we do that with. Like our friendships, if logistically it's not working out, it doesn't mean we hate the person, but it's like, you know, the relationship changes. We live in different places. Um, But with romantic relationships, for some reason, Mm -hmm. we don't let that happen. Okay. I think that's one of the biggest takeaways of having you on today with, with stress and understanding that love does not always conquer all. And that's not necessarily a negative statement to, to say out loud. And then what are the biggest three, the three biggest takeaways you think stress can work for us and not against us when recovering, going through the, the, the midst of it, as well as recovering from a breakup? Yeah. So you're going to feel stress, but there are two types of stress. There's use stress and there's de-stress. So distress is the bad kind. Use stress is the type of stress that actually feels good. Um, So use stress is learning a new skill. Mm. It is when you exercise, that is a form of stress, but it's use stress. It feels good. It can turn to distress if you're over-exercising, but it starts as use stress. Starting a project, doing something that is challenging for you can actually be a way to harness stress in a way that feels good Mm. motivates you to move you forward. If we didn't have stress, we wouldn't move. There'd be no No motivation. motivation. Right. We would just sit still all the time. You cannot live a life without stress. You actually want it in your life. Um, Sorry, go ahead. What were you going to say? And when you say you stress, is it Y-O-U or is it like a it's E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S. So it's a own- U-stress. Yeah. We're getting a vocabulary lesson. Okay. U-stress yeah. and de-stress. Yes. So it's its own type of stress. We need it. If we don't have it, then our life is like blah. We just lay in bed all day. So you want it. You want to take stressful situations and harness them into that 
motivating type of stress. And you want to work to make sure it doesn't move to distress where it's mm-hmm. upsetting and it's demotivating and can cause depression and all mm-hmm. sorts of things. And so when you're thinking about the end of a relationship, if you could shift the thinking to this is a challenge that I'm going to take on and I'm going to face the challenge and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z to face that challenge, that moves it from distress, which is why is this happening to me? This is a threat. Da, da, da. And I'm not I'm saying- losing all these aspects of my life potentially with shelter and security, financial security, emotional losing security. Everything. Yeah. And I'm not saying to be toxic positivity. It is very important to still feel the distress and say, mm-hmm. I'm doing mm-hmm. that. This is, hurt. this is hurting me. And, and people confuse the two. Like you said, it's like, get on the bandwagon of, of everything's going to be okay. And I think that's so important that you're recognizing to get on the bandwagon that everything's okay is not negating- your, your sad feelings. You can do both. Simultaneous truths can exist. Yes. You yeah. learned it in therapy, didn't you? <laughs> Try it. Well, but both can exist. So you can, of course, still say, this is scary. This is hard. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take and- a depression nap for an hour. I might get two thirds less done in a day for the next couple months. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to like spend money on crap that I don't need because it feels good momentarily. (laughs) You can do all of that. And I want you to push yourself to have one little mindset shift, which is there's something in this that's going to be a challenge for me. Mm. And I'm not looking at, at it as a threatening challenge. There's something here that I can challenge myself the way I would with exercise, the way I would with learning a new topic um, at work, I'm going to think of what it is. And when I work with my clients who are breaking up, there's lots of things they think of. They're like, oh, this is when I can finally learn to be assertive. Or this is where I can really push myself to not fly off the handle, to Mm -hmm. utilize emotional regulation. And so they're kind of tapping into this stressful experience, but they're doing it by seeing it as a challenge a motivation to do something for themselves that is better or different. So that's one way to tap into the stressful situation. Mm -hmm. So the second thing that I suggest is paying attention to the areas of the body that stress impacts and doing something to relieve them. So stress impacts breathing, Mm -hmm. it impacts muscle tension, and it impacts the way that we think. So do deep breaths. Notice I'm feeling stressed, so I'm going to breathe. Um, muscle tension, exercise, dance, like shake it out, do anything you can to like release the muscles, massages, whatever. And then thinking. So utilize something like mindfulness or put your mind on a project. Um, by, by meditation and dance, I guess, cause it's mindfulness, it's body, it's muscle tension and it's, uh, it's yeah. breathing, it's muscle tension and it's, it's, it's your mind. Yeah. Those are both. Mind works. Yeah. Exercise is great because it includes everything too. You have to think about it. You have to breathe. You're moving your body. So those are the most important ways to respond to stress is to think, how is this impacting my body? And to actually respond to those things. Um, The last tip I would give for dealing with stress is remembering that people are either co-escalators or they are co-regulators. And so your job during a stressful situation is to be a co-regulator, not a co-escalator. Escalator. And what that means is that you are responding to things 
in a way that regulates your own body because your regulated body will be felt by other people. And mm-hmm. so it's, okay, this person really made me angry, but when I yell, I feel worse. So I'm going to lower my voice or I have a lot to say to them. They deserve me to say all of this, but I feel more calm when I say less. So I'm going to say less. And so those are my, my three tips. Find a challenge where you feel like you can grow. Pay attention to the areas of your body impacted by stress. Take care of them mm-hmm. and be a co-regulator. Recognize the ways that you can soothe your own body to try to reduce the tension in the space around you. You need to write more about breakups. I think that's the, that's the moral of the story. That's uh, the next. <laughs> yeah, that should be the next book. That is so helpful as far as a play-by-play of if you're in a relationship trying to make it work and if you have into that relationship of three amazing tools to help you recover from an uncoupling. Yeah. Yeah. And then finally, your words of wisdom. If you're going through a breakup, the elevator pitch is always tune into your own integrity. Integrity Mm. means doing the right thing, even when it's really hard. And there is almost nothing harder than the pain of losing interpersonal relationships. It's very hard, but continually come back to like, who am I? What do I believe in? What are my values? And do those things, even if you feel like the other person's pulling you away from them. Mm. Thank you guys for listening to Uncoupling. And thank you to Dr. Earnshaw for all of her time and advice this week. And I am your host, Holland Roden. Don't forget to subscribe to Uncoupling wherever you get your podcast and sign up to be an exclusive member of our Patreon account. And we'll see you next week. Uncoupling podcast is produced by Stampede Ventures, Jason R. Ellis, and Holland Roden.